This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Kawashi Jahangir Redimani was upset. He was a director of the Bank of Bombay. Bank of Bombay wanted to lend against the shares of other banks. A decision that he strongly resisted. It was 1863. The rebellion of 1857 in the Indo-Gangetic plains had been suppressed for some time. The control of India had passed from the East India Company to the British Crown. Parsi and Gujarati brokers had been trading in shares for 8 years at different locations in Bombay and a roaring bull market was underway. The Bombay Stock Exchange would be born not now, another 12 years later. Share prices of companies that did not exist till a few years ago were rising astronomically. The back pay reclamation share, for instance, with a face value of Rs. 5,000, traded at Rs. 50,000. Bank of Bombay's 500 shares rose to um, 2,850. The root of all the speculation lay in events which took place in the distant United States. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president, had been running a campaign against slavery and it led to a civil war. The conflict, American Civil War, choked the traditional sources of cotton for the British. The textile milks of Birmingham and other places soon turned to India. buying up all they could and more this was a period of unprecedented prosperity for those engaged in the cotton trade cotton was called white gold and its demand grew so large that the traders even tore apart mattresses and pillows so that they could sell the stuffing incidentally new beds um, began to be made of coir fiber Cotton had become far too expensive to sleep on. But Redimani, Kawasji Jahangir Redimani, was afraid that it would all come to grief one day. And I quote, He said, Such practices will induce greatly more gaming in share. I'd wait and never have this sort of dangerous business for the present. Unquote. It didn't work. The baking point finally came when Bank of Bombay increased its capital despite his express opposition. He resigned. The institution was the poorer without ready money. Without his coming influence, the Bank of Bombay became one of the key sources of capital for the speculation mania. The man who replaced ready money at the position of influence in Bank of Bombay was Premchand Raichand. a financial whiz kid and beloved of the masses crowds would gather from early morning at his baikala bungalow they were attracted like moths to a flame everybody wanted to meet the man with the golden touch and maybe lay his hands on a share or two not even the government was immune a significant number of government employees had been investing in the market On November 16, 1864, Bartle Frere, the governor of Bombay, issued a circular. He cautioned civil servants against involving themselves in shares during the present period of excitement. The circular didn't work. In one of the earliest instances of conflict of interest, 
Some even bought stakes in companies they dealt with in an official capacity. What contributed to the bull run were time bargains. These were essentially forward contracts which made it easier for people to bet on the rising share prices. Governor Fair attempted to pass what was called the Wages Bill. It would have clamped down on these time bargains. But the move was strongly resisted by merchants. Jivaraj Balu, the most important cotton trader of the time, signed a petition against the bill, and as did Premchand Raichand. Burton Fair, however, persisted. Unbelievably, the bill was lost in transit between Shimla and Calcutta before it could be signed into law. By the time Lord Lawrence, the Viceroy, could sign it and bring it into operation, it was too late. The stock market bubble had burst two months ago. The meltdown happened because the American Civil War ended in May 1865. It caused cotton prices to fall in anticipation of the resumption of supplies from the United States. Exports collapsed and it would take another quarter century to reach the same level as 1865. The effect on the city's elite was utter ruin. The premier business houses of the time, the so-called Merchant Princes of Bombay, saw their wealth disappear before their very eyes. Berhamji Hormuzji Kama went under after failing to come up with a 3.3 crore. Other failures included Rustamji Jamsedji Jijiboy and Khurshidji Fadunji Parekh. These were the Ambanis, the Adanis and the Tatas and the Birlas of the late 19th century Bombay. The disaster didn't drain the city just economically. Its population declined by 21% in the years following the crash. There were estimated to be 8,16,000 people in Bombay in 1864. The census of 1872 put the population of Bombay at 6,44,000. So, this was the, let me quote, this was the migration from Bombay of the swarms of adventurers and laborers from all parts of India and from abroad who were attracted to the city by the speculative enterprises, unquote. Welcome back to History Chatter's special series, Bombay Born. We go back to the 1850s to understand how Bombay became the megapolis that it is today. In the last episode, I had said that the great indigenous banking house of Atmaram Vukhan had collapsed in the crash of mid-1860s. In fact, I said that the house enjoyed such a stellar reputation that its bills were honoured everywhere in India. Such was their credibility that there was a popular saying that every hair of the moustache of the partners was worth at least a lakh. Nevertheless, I also said that the house suddenly collapsed in the crash of 1864. In this episode, I'll take you through what exactly happened in 1864. In this episode and in the next episode, we'll be looking at the crash of 1864. Dinshaw Watcher, who actually wrote a whole book on that episode, described it, and I quote, as a high fever of speculation, which gripped the city of Bombay. 
In 1864-65, Bombay was not yet a great city. Greatness was yet a generation away. It had already made a name as a major center of trade and commerce. It had suddenly overtaken Calcutta in volumes of trade during the last three years. And it ran a huge trade surplus. For instance, imports during the three years ending in 1864-65 totaled roughly 27 crores. And exports for 1864-65 alone exceeded 40 crores. There was only a handful of Indian brokers, whether dealing with commodities or shares. Cotton factories numbered only seven. Even those had been struggling for survival since they did not yet have the equipment to spin yarn from raw staple, which had been selling at 600 or 700 per candy. The Port Trust had not even been conceived, and the length of the railway tracks built by the Great Indian Peninsula Railways was 591 miles. The telegraph service was in its infancy and often dismissed as useless. It had only just debuted, and the Chambers of Commerce had only begun requesting the government to use the services, the telegraph services, for communicating important political and commercial information. A 20-word telegraph message to Suez Canal would cost between 3 and 5 pounds. There was only one steam navigation company that ferried fortnightly mail. Cotton trade was carried out in a fairly primitive manner still. The Apollo Bandar was the principal point of loading and unloading cotton. It oversaw brisk activity during the months of April and May every year, when thousands of dokras of cotton would arrive from the fields in various parts of the Deccan, in countless wooden ships and traditional boats of various types. Hydraulic presses baled the raw staple at the dock later. They were laid out along the narrow stretch from the edge of the Apollo Pier, to where the Wellington Fountain stands today. Wellington Fountain was then one of the first impressions of a city a visitor arriving through the Apollo Bandar would have. It was built in 1865 in honor of the Duke of Wellington, who had visited the town in 1801 and 1804. In 2017, the fountain was restored through a joint initiative by the Greater Mumbai Municipal Corporation and Mahindra and Mahindra. The restoration was taken up for a special mention in the UNESCO Asia-Pacific Awards Ceremony for Cultural Heritage Conservation in 2017. Sanitation was deplorable. The city would often be condemned for its high death rates on account of fever and cholera, yet Sir Bartle Frere, who had just arrived as the governor of Bombay, had already envisaged the bright future ahead. However, the crash of 1860s would dash all his great hopes to dust. The American Civil War had broken out. There was a corresponding slump in the export of American cotton to Lancashire textile mills. As the mills were starved of raw cotton while the civil war raged, they were forced to look elsewhere for supply. They now had almost to wholly depend on India, 
or the Bombay presidency for raw cotton. In other words, Bombay during those three or four years in the early 60s stood up to supply the entire requirement of raw cotton for the largest concentration of textile mills in the world. The area under cotton cultivation rose dramatically and people would rush to Bombay to profit from the stirring events happening a world away. The margin of profit rose in direct proportion to the fall in prospects of peace in America till 1865. Surat cotton, which prior to 1863 was sold in the Liverpool market at 3 to 5 pence per pound with an exchange of 2 shillings or very near it, began to fetch as much as 20 to 24 dime. Surat or Dhulera descriptions, which were sold on the green at rupees 120 to rupees 180 per candy, rose to rupees 600 and even 700. The recorded exports of cotton in 1864-65 were 19 lakh bells, worth rupees 29 crores, against 7 lakh of bells valued at 5 crores in 1861. Capital was made available for anything and everything, from the large banks to small brick and tile companies with capital of a few thousand rupees. There was often a vast difference between the nominal capital and the capital actually paid on the shares subscribed. A majority of these concerns started the business with one-third or one-fourth of their supposed capital. The new banks had capital divided into shares of either rupees 200 or 250 each, while the financial associations and corporations had theirs divided invariably into shares of uh, rupees 400. Large financial associations and corporations entered the field quite late, but they were the ones to eventually preside over the crash. The Financial Association of India and China was practically the first of its kind. It was started in May 1864 by a group of promoters which included Kawasji Jahangir, James Forbes of the banking house Forbes and Company, Elias Sassoon and Andrew Grant. It had a nominal capital of 2.40 crores, divided into 16,000 shares of rupees 400 each. During the heyday of the speculation in its shares, the capital actually called up was rupees 100 per share only. But as soon as it had become known that this association was about to be launched under a most powerful and influential board, each director was considered a pillar of gold by himself. Then the shares began to be quoted at 60% premium on their nominal value. As soon as the company was formed, duly registered and had commenced its operations, they rose to 96% the premium. This was the maximum premium, which really meant that on each share, the lucky allottee could realize a profit of rupees 384 on his paid up capital of 100 rupees. This tempting bait was probably the real genesis of several similar concerns which followed soon after. I'll take up the case of one of these institutions in some detail in the next episode. It is useful to offer an outline of the nature and scope of these financial institutions. First came the banks, followed by the launching of financial associations. 
And these were followed by even a much more ambitious bunch of concerns known as khada or reclamation companies. These three would usually be promoted by the same set of directors. Together, they made up a joint portfolio. It became the fashion among the prominent financiers that the most influential bank should have an equally influential financial feeder in the form of a financial association. As a corollary or appendix to both, there should be a powerful reclamation company, popularly called Khado. For instance, almost the same directors who bought the, the Asiatic Banking Corporation um, were instrumental in promoting the Financial Association of India and China. These two later set up a huge concern called the Bombay Reclamation Company. It was commonly called the Back Bay Company since its primary objective was to reclaim the whole of the Back Bay from end to end, meaning from Kalaba Point to Malabar Point. Bombay Reclamation or Back Bay Company was the forerunner of half a dozen similar enterprises. The plan of operation was simple. When the financial was started, financial association was started, the bank helped to promote its speculation by advancing on its shares. When the financial association in turn promoted the reclamation company, it fed the speculation jointly with the bank. The tide of headlong speculation set in with the start which the Asiatic Bank gave to India-China Financial Association. This was in May 1864. From that time onward, it rolled forth onward 10 months. That was indeed a high tide in the affairs of the speculating humanity of Bombay, which certainly led to fabulous fortunes. Following in the wake of these older financial institutions, all the newer ones were quoted more or less at a high premium. The nun had even declared a first dividend. Many of them were barely four or six months old. Yet, they would be quoted at a premium without any attention to their earnings. Initially, it was only the big players, meaning famous English and Indian capitalists, merchants or brokers, who had floated these triangular concerns. But within a short while, it became a fashion for anybody and everybody to start a financial scheme and hire an artful broker. The broker would then recommend all and sundry to go in for that particular concern and make a fortune in a day. When a contagion of this character spreads, the community is carried away. Men abundan sound common sense and discretion behind. They were infatuated enough to believe that thousands could be made with the speed of a magic trick. The newspapers were full of prospectuses of such new companies daily launched, and they earned handsome advertisements money. Simultaneously, the lawyer would be put into requisition to draw up the formal memorandum and articles of association, as the promoters desired. In those days, the shrewd class of lawyers, which was extremely limited in number, really drove, and I quote, a roaring trade, unquote, in the preparation of these precious memoranda and articles. The charges were as fabulous as the inflated shares. 
These charges would range from rupees 5,000 to rupees 10,000. It was enough to make the lawyers of even contemporary times salivate. There was actually a dearth of managers, accountants and shroffs. The experienced officials of older and long-established institutions were asked to take up their new appointments at twice and thrice the amount of the salaries they were earning. Many would thus leave their former posts and the retention of Mr. A of the old ex-bank was considered by the outside public as an additional guarantee of excellent management and of the prospect of reaping golden harvests by way of dividends. The brilliant promoters would then proceed to allot the shares. It was not an inconsiderable task in those days, for everyone would apply, and the number of would-be allottees could be counted by thousands. In fact, from the menial who made 10 rupees per month to the highest individual on salaries, ranging from 1,000 rupees to 5,000 rupees would all apply. And so did the wealthy merchants and traders. There was a certain method and manner with the vulgar applicants. Each and all of them were carried away by the idea that in order to be lucky enough to get even one share, they should apply for 100 and they would sometimes similarly apply for shares at one and the same time to half a dozen different companies. Thus, a clerk on rupees 10 with not a pie surplus capital to invest in would be known to apply for 600 shares in six different companies on which uh, at the very least 60,000 rupees would be due by way of a first call. But he knew how he would manage. He had only to get an allotment of 100th part, say six shares, and go to the share bazaar and dispose of his allotments at whatever premium they might fetch. Thus, he would get his principal and his profit. The principal would be paid to those from whom he had temporarily borrowed to pay the call. If he was ambitious enough to reap a rich harvest, he would wait. And the majority did wait to find themselves in the end plunged into a sea of financial distress, the likes of which they had never seen in their lives. Indeed, the distress and misery of this class, the lower middle class, were indescribable when the aftermath overwhelmed them. But we'll come to that in the next episode. We'll come to much more about the nature, the character, the heroes and the villains of the speculation mania and the crash of 1864 in the next episode, episode 5 of Bombay Born, in which we're going back to 1850s to look at how the city of Bombay became the megapolis that it has since become. <laughs>